0: Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation, a multi-platform 360-degree crossover sound installation from the BBC Home Service. Trending live at the moment, hashtag how to speak.
1: Thank you, audience, and thank you to the disembodied voice of Peter Donaldson. As you may know, Peter was retired some years ago, but rights to his voice still belong to the BBC. So as he wanders silently through his twilight years, we can make him say anything we like. I heard that. But I'm also fortunate to be joined live by satellite in the studio by two people who are both authors but will also speak for money. Returning from last week is Paul Bassett Davis. Hello. <clears throat> and also joining us fresh from her appearance in the hit revival of the Broadway musical James and the Giant Lion King's Speech, Pauline McLinn. Hello. Now, few listeners will detect this, but the trained ear might pick up that Pauline has a very slight accent, unless you're in the west of Ireland, in which case she probably sounds completely normal.
2: That's where you're wrong, Jeremy. Really? Actually, no, you're wrong in loads of places. But that's where you're a bollocks and an eejit, as we would say.
1: Oh, s- sorry, I've no idea what that means.
2: Excellent. My point is that my accent is a mixture Born in Sligo, raised in Galway, live in Dublin and London. So it's all jumbled up, like Tom Cruise in Far and Away.
1: Well, on behalf of my country, may I say, we just love the way you people speak.
2: I know. We're so cute, aren't we? Not the Northerners, though. You don't like them so much, do you? I bet you sometimes think you kept the wrong bit when you heartlessly divided our land. They sound like Scottish people who haven't had enough to drink.
1: Is that uh, that what happened?
2: Pretty much, yes, actually. 400 years ago, you said, Right, Scotland, anyone who's sober, pack your bags and you can have some of Ireland. And we were too pissed to know what was going on.
1: Well, I feel I should apologise on behalf of the whole of Britain.
2: No, no. Leave it till you've held an inquiry. You British need a judge to tell you what you've done.
1: Ah, fair enough. Now, Paul, tell us a bit about the way you speak. Well, I was raised by wolves in the Glasgow
0: shipyards of South Wales but won a scholarship to Cheltenham Ladies' College, so my accent is best described as RP. What's that? Repeat prescription. Years of drug-taking. <laughs> OK,
1: OK. Now, in addition to being a well known raconteur, bon viveur, and volavant, you're also a respected academic. Yes, Jeremy. I've been conducting extensive
0: research at the National Institute for the Study of Verbal Talking and Redundant Tautology, where I'm the visiting professor of the spoken word, the muttered oath, and modern European langoustines.
1: Don't you, uh, don't you mean languages? That's what I just said. No, you said langoustines. No, you're thinking of linguistics. Well, what's the difference between linguistics and languages? Oh, forget
0: it. I'll just have the linguine with langoustines. Excellent choice. <laughs> Bring me a clean punchline, please. Would you like to see the specials? No, thank you. I saw them in the old days with the original (laughs) (laughs) lineup.
1: Anyway, on with the show. In tonight's programme, I shall be looking at how we speak, the motivation behind the way we speak, and also when not to speak. Sometimes we talk too much, and I'll admit that comedians are very self-obsessed people, whereas a true satirist is someone who looks full-on at the horrors of the world and thinks, Hmm...
0: How can I turn this to my advantage?
1: <laughs> but at least I'm trying to confine my attention-seeking to the stage. The rest of the time, I'm trying harder and harder to shut up, and it's actually very difficult just to sit and really listen to someone else. Unless you're texting, obviously.
2: <laughs> uh-huh, what? No, I am listening. Wow, that must have been amazing or terrible. Well, it must have, been, must have had a profound effect. What? Oh... Milk, no sugar. Thanks.
1: (laughs) But as I get older and I consider mortality, I'm trying to be a better person in a search for redemption. And part of my quest involves being a better listener. I'm trying to squash the urge to make the conversation about me. Most of us can't wait to do that. Someone tells us something terrible's happened in their life, and we say...
2: Oh, I know how you feel. I accidentally deleted a day's work yesterday. Lost everything. I was just devastated, literally. I mean, it was all backed up and it wasn't anything important. It it was a letter to the council about the bins, but I just wanted to take focus here and this is kind of all I've got at the moment, so... Sorry. Uh, You were saying?
1: No, I thought I was doing well becoming a good listener and then something happened to me. In October, my mum died, which turns you upside down in all sorts of ways, and one of the things that happened was that I realised I'd been a rubbish friend to all my friends who've lost one or more parent. Not because I didn't care, but because I just didn't get it. I didn't grasp the magnitude of it. Specifically, a friend of mine lost his mum a few months before I lost mine, and instead of asking him how he was and just listening, I wanted to offer words of condolence. And the thing was, my mum had dementia, so I asked... Was your mum still all there up until the end? And he said, yes. And I said, well, that's great. You must really hold on to that and and treasure the time that you had with her because I don't really have that kind of connection anymore. Now, I can only imagine that subconsciously I was thinking, this is great. I'm consoling someone with my much worse situation, which means I win and I'm a good person. (laughs) He felt better, and I felt good that I'd made him feel better, so it was a win-win situation, apart from the death and dementia side of things. <laughs> and then my mum died, and I thought, Oh, God, Hardy, why couldn't you just shut up and listened? It's probably harder to lose someone if you haven't already been saying goodbye to them over a number of years. And then I thought, yeah, but to be fair, that is really terrible, because I've had all that and the final blow of losing her, so... I'm still in this. It is still all about me. Yay! Because it is really terrible when your mum doesn't know who you are. Perhaps I overestimate the popularity of Radio Four. I, uh, I bet Russell Howard's mum knows who he is.
2: Is that you, Russell? That little bastard from the television
1: I don't know why she'd speak like that she can only be about 30 look
2: I'm just doing what you asked
1: yeah I know you. I wasn't criticizing you
2: well you need to be careful what you say English bastard <laughs>
1: Absolutely, and I'll be dealing with the subject of offence later on. In fairness to Russell Howard, he's not speaking to the same people as I am. I'm sure teenagers love him, and I have to accept that I just don't have as much to say to people who are that young. My daughter's 22 now, so I don't really hang out with teenagers anymore. Whenever I see one, I want to say... Hello, young man. Now, you see your T-shirt? Well, I actually saw the Ramones. (laughs)
0: They really did exist, yes. And do you know where I saw them? Bournemouth. A place I feel I'm heading to once more. Yes, yes, oh, they were marvellous. Uh, no, I, I didn't see Che Guevara. No, he was more of a South American revolutionary. Uh, no, uh, Jesus was earlier, yes, on vinyl. Yes,
1: that's right. Look, I'm sorry I bothered you. Of course, when someone dies, you have all kinds of regrets. Things you didn't do, things you didn't say. I regret that I never got into a confrontation with a man who said, By the time I finish with you, your own mother won't recognise you. So I could have said, I'm afraid you'd rather miss the boat there, dear boy. (laughs) All starting to run. And suddenly it seems as though you turn on the radio and everything is about age and death. Everyone's talking about end-of-life care. A new health minister taking up her position spoke out in favour of assisted dying, although she is probably referring to benefit cuts. And there is, there is a general concern about provision for the elderly. Now, I've got no complaints about the care my mum received in the nursing home. The nurses were brilliant, cos nurses usually are. The only problem would be if a new member of staff came on duty and they didn't know my mum and they would speak to her as though she was deaf because that's just the voice you do for old people Many of us seem to think you need different voices for different people. For old people, it's shouting. For babies and children, it's that horrible, creepy, singy, songy CBeebies voice. (laughs) Why talk to children like that? There's nothing wrong with them. Just because they're small and they don't know much, it's not their fault. They're picking up stuff as quickly as they can. And they learn pretty fast. When you think how long it's taken you to learn half a dozen words of Spanish, and a toddler has nailed one, maybe two languages by the age of three, just by listening, and you're not helping them to learn by talking to them as though you've just been hit by a car. (laughs) I reckon babies would learn much faster if their early interaction with fellow humans was not huge, strange, smelly faces looming in front of them, making weird goo-goo noises. Why can't we just speak calmly and sensibly to them? Good morning. You must be Emily. Delighted you could join us. We've been expecting you for some time. (laughs) It's quite normal to have different voices for different occasions. I quite liked when people had a telephone voice because speaking on the telephone was a special occasion. Beck 45598. Oh, hello, Doctor. It's the
0: Doctor! <laughs> yes, I do have a pencil and paper. They are in the drawer of the telephone table in front of which I am standing. Unlike now, when the phone rings any time, any place. Hello, mate. How you doing? Sorry, reception's terrible in here. At church, mate. Funeral, yeah No, it's fine, because the great thing is She was still all there right up until the very end A very wise man consoled me with that fact In a way that was in no way Competitive about grief
1: But in general, you know where you are when people sound consistent. You don't want someone to be acting with you. I don't think there are many things less attractive than an attempt at a sexy voice like in a bedroom scene in a movie. And the trouble with having different voices for different occasions is you could get them mixed up. What if you're saying something that's supposed to be sexy, like... You like that, don't you? But you do the rubbing the dog's tummy voice. (laughs) You like it, don't you? works for me. (laughs) It is forgivable to have a weird voice for talking to dogs, because we don't speak their language. Talking to cows and sheep is easy, because you just go moo or bar, and they look up to acknowledge you, chew a couple of times, realise you've got no vocabulary, just very good pronunciation... And then go back to eating the grass. But barking isn't a word. Dogs don't literally say woof. Although I did once meet a talking cat in Ballam. He didn't go, He actually spoke the word, he did. He sat on a wall, and as I went past, he said, MEOW! Very clearly. And I looked round as if I was being set up by one of the many pallid and regrettable copies of Candid Camera that have happened since it first aired in 1948. But he did it again and his lips moved. So I think he was a man who'd been turned into a cat but still had his own voice. But I think that's quite unusual. However, although dogs don't speak English, they do respond to tone of voice, because they appear to be genuinely capable of understanding human emotion in a way that's unknown among other animals and maths graduates. (laughs) A dog knows when we're happy or sad or frightened and will lick its genitals slightly differently (laughs) in each one of those circumstances. Dogs also play a useful role in facilitating communication among humans. If a person is out walking a dog, you've got a ready-made conversation with them. We would never dream of going up to a random dogless pedestrian and asking what breed they are and how old they are and saying how gorgeous they are. We wouldn't stroke them or crinkle their ears. Certainly not if they were carrying a bag of their own excrement. (laughs) I always find it a bit worrying if someone's got a bag of excrement and no dog. Yeah, I just like the accessories. Now, Paul, as an academic, what's your take on canine communication? Well, Jeremy,
0: as I said when I gave the Dr. Doolittle Memorial Lecture at the London College of Doggy Fashion, because dogs understand tone of voice, we can teach them to respond correctly to certain commands and eventually to recognise simple words like sit, stay, roll over and... What's that, Skippy? Flipper's fallen down the old mine, shop. <laughs> of course, this all goes back to Pavlov's experiments with dogs and his research into conditioning. But when he dealt with the problem of their unmanageable, lifeless hair, <laughs> he turned to their behaviour. And everything we've been talking about is illustrated by the well-known experiment in which he trained a famous ballerina to salivate every time her dog ate
1: a meringue-based dessert. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. And, of course... Some people have greater respect for cats because they're harder to train, so people cast them as edgy mavericks, but it's probably because they have no empathy and don't care what we think, which is hurtful because we care what they think. If we forget to feed them, we're worried that they'll think we're cruel and neglectful, when in reality, whatever we do, they just think we're a sucker who can open tins. even care if we're somebody else as long as we feed them. If I'm minding someone else's cat, I'm curiously flattered when it makes a fuss of me. I'm thinking I've developed a special bond because of some St Francis-like quality of mine and perhaps because there's something lacking in its relationship with its owner. (laughs) (laughs) go round when my neighbour's back from holiday and the cat doesn't even give me a look that says
2: what happened between us meant nothing. (laughs)
1: Just looks smug, because it knows I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say, yeah, she was fine, and she snaked all around my legs, and I stroked her, and she purred like she's doing now with you. And for a moment, for one moment, I imagined I was a cat as well, running through the undergrowth in pursuit of a mouse. I washed the four up. It's on the draining board. <laughs> Now, you might be thinking that material about dogs and cats is very standard fodder for average club comics. That's what people tell me. I wouldn't know because I rarely go and see other comics, cos every time I do, it just makes me feel unoriginal. What? Other people have spotted Cameron's Atoff? (laughs) No. Which brings me back to the theme of tonight's programme, How to Speak. Our society is increasingly unequal and dominated by a privileged few, but at the same time, the way we speak has become more equal. The royals have softened their strangulated Germanic vowels. Princes William and Harry speak the kind of private school cockney favoured by Tony Blair and Peaches Geldof. (laughs) politicians and the super-rich are first and foremost celebrities. Being revered for wealth or rank is harder to pull off. The thing about famous people that's respected is fame itself. And when you're famous, doing zany or energetic things for charity is part of the package, so by definition, fame makes you good. If Prince Harry, Alan Sugar, Gok Wan and Ian Duncan-Smith were all in a special episode of The Office for comic relief, nothing else in the world would matter that day. (laughs) At one time, the powerful had to alienate us, and in order to do that, they would speak in a way that made them unassailably superior. We all know the story of Prince Albert, who was to become George VI, and is portrayed by Colin Firth in The King's Speech. He never expected to be king. Like Prince Harry, he was the younger brother of the heir to the throne and struggled to get a coherent sentence out. (laughs) Harry realised some time ago that communicating with people was never going to be his strength, so he devoted himself to killing them instead. (laughs) But Albert was unexpectedly lumbered when his brother abdicated, Edward feeling unable to discharge his duties as king, as he would wish to do, without the help and support of the Fuhrer he loved. (laughs) Albert stroke George's speech impediment was potentially disastrous for him and the monarchy because it made him vulnerable. Today, however, Charles's best bet would be to develop Tourette's. <laughs> so when he opens his mouth, he'd say what we're thinking. <laughs> but when did speaking become more than just an exchange of information and increasingly about power and status? Paul?
0: Well, Jeremy, let's
1: examine the origins
0: of human speech. Scientists have got something to tell us about this, but we've no idea what it is because they've all got beards and they tend to mumble a lot. (laughs) But it seems likely that in Neanderthal times, a very basic vocabulary of a few key sounds or words would have sufficed. Danger. Kill.
2: Fire. Eat. Sex. 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 (laughs) Sex.
0: Cigarette? Thanks. But now let's move forward from the dawn of history to the coffee break of history. Why did human speech develop far more complexity and nuance than was required for purely practical purposes? There's a theory that someone who used language to control social information gained status. In other words, complex language evolved so that we could gossip.
2: Her in the cave next door. She's no better than she should be, flaunting herself like a woolly mammoth on heat. And she's not a natural blonde. Oh, no. You can tell she dyes her beard.
0: (laughs) And him on the other side, the new fella, he's only gone and put curtains up. Curtains? What's his game? It's obvious, isn't it? He's one of them. One of what? Homo sapiens.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, at a risk of explaining what you've just heard in a way that sucks all mirth from life, as Nicholas Parsons does in just a minute... (laughs) What you just heard was a joke that derives from the Latin prefix meaning man being the same as the Greek prefix meaning the same. Some people might conclude that because of an implied reference to gay men, it was hostile to gay men. Now, I would never countenance such a thing because I'm trying to blag comps for a chorus line. And (laughs) because in addition to the fact that gay people would find it offensive... I would find it offensive. We can and should be offended by things without necessarily being the target of the offence. But if, for example, someone says something anti Semitic and I object, people will say, Why are you Jewish? Well, why do I need to be? If I sign a petition against torture, it's not because I've got a low pain threshold. <laughs> and by the way, the number of petitions I'm signing online, this world is going to be a really good place pretty <laughs> soon. But take, for example, the N-word, which is very commonly used by black hip-hop artists, reflecting the fact that quite a lot of African-American people use it among themselves. Last year, I went to a debate about the positive and negative aspects of hip-hop. Now, Radio 4 listeners may have difficulty picturing me (laughs) at such an event, because you probably have me pigeonholed as more of a dubstep man. But I was interested in the discussion and it was obviously very much about language and there was a focus on words that are homophobic and misogynistic and, of course, racist, especially the N-word. And there was this discussion about whether white people can ever use it and I thought... Well, why would I want to use it? It offends me, as a human. I'm offended by the N-word because I'm not a C-word. And I'm sorry if you're offended by my use of part of the female body as an insult, and I agree with you in principle, but we lost that battle in the 90s, and now I think the word has more value pejoratively than anatomically. You don't, you don't hear doctors use it except about Andrew Lansley. <laughs> That's why he was replaced with Jeremy Hunt. Who can imagine it's a verbal slip? (laughs) Thank you, Jim Nocte. You spoke for the nation. But I digress, and I'm being undermined by my own intellectual inconsistency, so let's try to focus for a minute on the N-word. Now, I'm not saying it's a straightforward issue, and there is the argument that there is language that stays in the group. Obviously, the fact that people talk about themselves in a certain way doesn't give you the right to join in. I mean, that's a principle we apply to the whole of life. When someone says... God, I look terrible! I've learned that there are things to say and things not to say. One of the things not to say is, thank you, finally! I was beginning to think it was just me who thought that. (laughs) And if a word is supposed to be some sort of private circulation expression for use only within a community, I'm not sure that putting it in the lyrics of popular songs of the day is the best way to keep it there. But there is also the argument that a fixation with words ignores hidden prejudice, and I take the point. I just think you ought to be able to do two things at once. Not if you're a man, obviously. We'll have to leave women to tackle terminology and intent simultaneously while we get on with taking our Christmas tree lights out of the loft. (laughs) But it's a fair point, for example, that governments might be very careful in the language they use and make a show of being appalled by racism while at the same time practising it. Massacring tribespeople by drone attack might not be a racially aggravated offence in law, but being a funny-looking foreigner clearly doesn't do you any favours in the compassion stakes. And Labour Home Secretaries who made great play of sounding anti-racist sent refugees back to be jailed and tortured, when all you'd have to do is sign a piece of paper and someone can start a new life in relative safety and maybe become an Olympic champion. But even if they don't, wouldn't that be one of the nice bits about being Home Secretary. Most of it's moaning about threats and vigilance. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say to someone, Do you know what? Stay here. No, seriously, you
0: don't want to go back there. It's fine. We'll fit you in. I know you destroyed your passport. Of course you did. You were scared. Don't worry about it. I put mine through a colour-fast cotton cycle and they made me a new one in 20 minutes. (laughs) They can do it when they want to. They just don't want everyone knowing that. I'll make them do you a new one. I'm the government. I can do what I want. You want biscuits? Let's have biscuits. so nice having someone cheerful to talk to. All
1: day I'm with chief constables. <laughs> Absolute torture. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bit tactless. <laughs> but I'm speaking about matters of national politics now, which raises an issue. Sometimes I'm accused of speaking as though I assume everyone agrees with me, and I don't. I just try to overlook the fact that people don't agree with me, because I don't like to think badly of them. <laughs> And I'm still trying to learn the skill of polite disagreement. In the summer, I accidentally went to a royal jubilee party. My friend Sandy Toxig lives on a houseboat on the River Thames, and as part of the jubilee celebrations, there was to be this huge flotilla down the river. She decided to have a party and invited me. And I said, Sandy, you're not a royalist. She said, no, but I love boats, and there's going to be thousands of them going past my front room. I should have a party. Will you come? So I said yes. Now, her neighbour on the river is a wealthy theatre director with a much bigger boat and she went round to invite him but he said, oh, I was just on my way round to invite you. Let's have a joint party and you can invite all your guests to mine. Meanwhile, bear with me, Sandy (laughs) Sandy had also been asked to be a commentator but figured she could do a bit of that and then get back and enjoy the party but she got stuck miles down the river and didn't make it back for hours so there was this rather strange party involving some very well-to-do theatre people and a group of Hardcore lesbians of whom I was one. (laughs) And I imagined it would all be tongue-in-cheek, but quite a lot of people were serious monarchists. And at one point, I went up on deck to watch some of the boats, and the rain was pouring down, but on both sides of the river were thousands of people cheering and waving flags, and it was all in black and white. And I was trying to make make small talk with a lady. She was very posh, and she's probably someone very important in the theatre. I didn't know who she was, but anyway, she suddenly said doesn't it make you proud? Only in Britain could you get a turnout like this. And I said, well, I think North Korea could pull it off. (laughs) And she said, yes, but those poor devils don't have any choice. And I thought, well, that makes us the pillocks then, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, we're very nearly out of time. So, Paul, as an expert, tell us how the future is shaping up for the way we speak. Well, Jeremy, it's inevitable that new technology will change the way we speak.
0: In fact, it may replace the way we speak. For example, this radio programme could be downloaded as a memory straight into someone's brain so they could look back nostalgically at what a great programme it was without even having to listen to it.
2: Oh, I don't like the sound of that at all, Paul. That's scaring me. And I used to love the future.
0: Not only that, Pauline, but these developments could change our everyday communications. Words might become mere triggers for the rest of a conversation that takes place silently. Twenty years from now, we might sound more like this.
2: What are you thinking? Nothing. Yes, you are. I heard you. Well,
0: well, I was just thinking about, you know...
2: Oh, God, yes. (laughs) He's completely...
0: Yes, and he thinks he's so...
2: (laughs) And all the time he's just...
1: Right. Especially with that ridiculous... (laughs) (laughs) Do you mind? I am in the room. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. And it looks nothing like a chicken. (laughs) So... So, listener, my final words to you this series are Speak softly. A telephone compensates for the distance between you and the person to whom you're speaking. (laughs) Good night and good luck.
2: Speaks to the Nation was communicated in written language by Jeremy Hardy and verbalized by Paul Bassett-Davies and Pauline Mclinn with additional text by Paul Bassett-Davies. The program was translated by David Tyler and is a positive production for the Perfidious Albion Broadcasting Corporation.